Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. My name is my wife is Caitlin. Um, we are from the Dallas area. Um, that's Rowlett, Texas. You've probably never heard of it, except you met Titus um, and JD and a couple of those guys. You've probably seen Jason Collins around here. That's our church. That's Crossroads Church. I have been there for um, 13 years. I've been in ministry since I was 17, um, and I am going to turn 30 this year. So um, that means there are kids in my student ministry. No, that's not good. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that means there are kids in my student ministry that were not born when I started ministry, which makes me feel a little bit old. But here's what's so cool about today is we traveled hundreds of miles and met family. Like, that's such a cool thing about the kingdom of God, and I'm so excited for this morning, but I don't believe that I'm here by accident today. I don't believe that you're here by accident today. I believe God has a word for you. I believe God has a word for me this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive right into the text this morning. God, thank you so much for just how good you are. God, that you are powerful, in control. Even in moments where it doesn't feel like it, God, I'm so grateful that you are who the word says you are. God, this morning we come to you and we trust that you want to speak to us. And God, we just want to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, and focus our attention on you. And God, I believe you have a word for every person in this room. So God, I pray you'd be with us this morning. Be with me. Cleanse me of sin. Forgive me for sin. God, please be clear through my words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, last words are powerful. I remember the first time I saw the movie The Lion King, um, and there's this moment that's very powerful where Mufasa and Scar are facing off. Are y'all familiar with this movie? Okay, great. Uh, so um, they are facing off, and Mufasa's last words as he is dangling from the cliff, he looks at his brother, and he says, Brother, help me. And I won't spoil the movie, but if you haven't seen it yet, it's like 30 years old. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't help him. Mufasa falls to his death. And those are some of the most famous last words that I remember watching movies as a kid. So this week I thought, I'm going to look up last words of famous people. And I was just going to tell you a bunch of them. And then I came across one that blew my mind. Leonardo da Vinci, not DiCaprio, da Vinci, a Renaissance painter, engineer, scientist, theorist, sculptor, and architect. He 
did pretty good for himself, right? He comes to the end of his life. I mean, after he has painted the Mona Lisa, after he has painted the Last Supper painting, he comes to the end of his life, and this is the last thing he said. I have offended God and man because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. What? Like, I read that and I go, the only two paintings that I can name are painted by this guy. Like, he is amazing. And he gets to the end of his life and he shares this and it has a certain weight to it. So how much more when we arrive in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in the history of our faith, is pinning a letter to Timothy. It's his last words. It is moments before death. And he turns our attention somewhere. You see, Paul's attention is not on his life, as our our friend Leonardo da Vinci. It is not on what he has done, but it is squarely on the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't focus on himself. He points us to Jesus. So this morning, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus and a lot about the gospel. So if you have your Bible, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. He says this, remember Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that phrase a lot today, so just be ready for that. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithful, our God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, the Apostle Paul starts out here, he just says three simple words, remember Jesus Christ. So it reminded me of something, it reminded me that I can't ride a bike. You can laugh at me, it's okay. I don't know how to ride a bike. I remember being a kid and we would, uh, like I would go out at my dad's house and we would ride our bikes and they'd have training wheels on them and I would ride it for hours, six, eight hours a day and it was amazing. And then one day something horrible happened. My dad walked up to me and he he said, son, it's time to take the training wheels off and he took them off and I got on the bike for like four seconds And then I crashed. And then what good kids do is they get back on the bike and their parent lovingly puts them back up and they try again. What I did was I got up, I grabbed the bike, I walked it into our garage and I looked at my dad and I said, I will never ride that bike again. It betrayed me. I will never do that again. But here's here's a truth of my life that is uncomfortable for me. There's nothing physical wrong with me that makes me not be able to ride a bike. The fact that I can't ride a bike is 100% mental because what I remember about that bike is that when I got on the bike, I fell down and I never want to get on the bike again. And Paul is in the middle of suffering and he says, I need you to remember something when you're in the middle of suffering. And it's not remember failure, it's remember Jesus. Because what we normally, normally remember, what our passion, what our, um, sorry, not our passion, but our temptation to remember is our past. That when you get in the middle of struggle, when you get in the middle of temptation, when I get in the middle of struggle, my temptation is to remember my past, remember failure, remember my weaknesses, remember my struggle, 
And Paul doesn't say any of that. He says, remember Jesus. And you might go, Wes, I have a bad memory. I can't remember anything. Here's what's so interesting about this text. There is one command in this text. Remember. It is active. It is a decision. It is a moment by moment to decision to remember Jesus Christ. It takes effort to remember Jesus. Your natural, broken, sinful state wants to remember all the other junk that the enemy wants to remind you of. But Paul's going to say, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of struggle, remember Jesus. How? I'll give you a couple of examples. In moments of struggle, run to Jesus. Run to the Word of God, not social media and not Netflix. Run to church, not to the bar. Run to discipleship, not isolation. Run to your spouse, not pornography. Run to Jesus. Don't make it complicated. I think as Christians, we are guilty of making some of the easiest concepts in our faith very complicated. Pick it up, open it, read it. There's power in it. Take a moment during your day. Pray to God. Talk to the creator of the universe. He wants to talk to you. Run to Jesus. Don't make it complicated. Then he says, remember that he is risen from the dead. And I think what Paul is saying here, he's just saying, remember his power. That in moments where you feel weak, in moments that you feel um, that you are in struggle, in moments that you feel like you have no power, could you remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? That he is eternally God. This is straight out of Colossians. He's eternally God. He is creator of the universe. He is before all things. He's in all things. In him, all things hold together. And the fullness, get this, get your mind around this, the fullness of God dwelled in the person of Jesus Christ. He's powerful. And he's with you. And then it says, remember that he has descended from David. He is the seed of David. And I think this is a reminder, Paul wants us to remember that God has been working for a really, really long time. That from the moment in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve wreck all of human history, when they mess it up for everybody, and just a reminder, if it wouldn't have been them, it would have been us. So like they wreck human history. And in Genesis 3, you get what's called the first gospel, and you get this picture of the cross from Genesis chapter 3, that one day Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. That thousands of years ago, God put the plan of redemption for you and for me in action. Remember Jesus. I think also he's telling us to remember his humanity here. That he has experienced, Hebrews tells us, he has experienced every temptation that we have experienced and he overcame it. But it says that we serve a God who can sympathize in our weakness. See, but I think the main thing that Paul wants to tell us here, we can actually pull from from Romans chapter eight. He says, "I, I think when we remember Jesus, our perspective on suffering changes. Here's what I mean in Romans 8, 18. If you've been around church at all, you've heard this verse before. It's for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You see, the idea of suffering is not foreign to the Apostle Paul. You know this. Y'all have walked through several chapters of Paul's writings. But just to remind you, he has been shipwrecked, snake-bitten, stressed, stoned, robbed in the deep. Which, by the way, that means that he was on a piece of wood floating in the middle of the ocean. I'm out on that. (laughs) He's been beaten with rods, scourged, sleepless, weary, hungry, thirsty, cold, naked, life-threatened, mocked, plotted against, arrested, and imprisoned. This guy knows 
suffering. You see, our culture is obsessed with comparing things. And in in this verse, he's going to say, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. But our culture loves to compare. I had some down here from our area. I'll see if any of these make sense to you. Um, There's an argument, LeBron is the greatest of all time or Michael Jordan, right? Like that is an argument in the basketball world. It's not really an argument. Michael Jordan is the best of all time. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, okay. There are basketball people here. This is great Uh, because we're getting to a really funny one here. Um, Taco Bell or Taco Bueno, dogs or cats? Cat people, here we are. Marvel or DC? Those are all things you could argue, but all those things are worth comparing. Now, what if I said today, when you walk out of church, me and Steph Curry are gonna just have a shoot around three point contest in the parking lot? Now, I know you haven't known me for long. Um, You probably could guess I'm not a good basketball player. I'm short, I'm not athletic, there's nothing about me that's athletic, but I love basketball. Actually, Steph Curry is one of my least favorite people in the world right now, because I'm a Mavs fan. So, but Steph Curry, and I go, who's gonna win? You would go, these things are not worth comparing. Steph Curry's gonna show up and destroy you, Wes. Of course he is. Maybe you're an NFL guy, like Tom Brady and everybody else. It's not worth comparing, as sad as that makes my heart. Like, he is the greatest. And Paul says there's some things that aren't worth comparing. He says the sufferings of this world shouldn't be compared to what God is going to reveal to you. See, one day I believe that if you are a believer in Christ, you will go home to be with the Lord, and there will be streets of gold, and there will be pearly gates, and there will be a sea like glass, and there will be mansions, and it will be amazing. There will be water fountains of Dr. Pepper and Queso Lakes. Like, I'm so excited for heaven, but can I tell you something? The best part about heaven is not the stuff. The best part about heaven is that you and I as believers in Christ get to spend an eternity with Jesus. It's amazing. And as amazing as that is, I think in Romans 8.18 we get something wrong. That the more appropriate word is not the glory that is to be revealed to us, although that is amazing, it's actually the glory that is supposed to be revealed in us. You see, the same glory that is awaiting you on the other side of this life is supposed to be experienced and revealed in you long before you get there. Don't miss this. The glory and the weight of the promises and the values and the character of Christ must be evident in us. Is that in moments of suffering, in moments of struggle, God wants to reveal his glory in you. Because I believe that God can transform our character through the suffering of this world. And the reason is, it's because we can live in such a way that God's glory in us can reveal Jesus to so many other people. Through how we live, through how we act, through how we talk, through how we think, through everything we do, Jesus wants to be revealed in us. There's a book that came out, um, or a movie that came out based on a book a few years ago, like 20 years ago. Um, It's called End of the Spear, and it's a a story of a missionary couple named Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim had an incredible heart for missions, and in 1952, Jim convinced four of his friends and their spouses to join him in reaching the people of the Curray River in Ecuador. And they were on the ground for less than a week, and all five were killed for the gospel. 
And two years later, something incredible happened. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, moved with her daughter to share the gospel and live among the people that killed her husband. That's mind-blowing to me. I don't know if that's mind-blowing to you. Just let the weight of that sit on you for a minute, that she believed God called her back to the people that murdered her husband so that they could know Jesus. And people asked her all the time this question, as I would, how do you do that? How do you do it? How do you continue to share the gospel with these people that wounded you in such a way? And here's what she said. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. See, the answer to the suffering of your life, the answer to the struggle of your life is not to sit and beg God that he would change your circumstances. But maybe that God would be revealed in you and through you in the midst of incredible struggle. And I know I'm a guest preacher, so I I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your lives, but here's what I do know. The suffering in this room is real. It is genuine. It is hard. It is difficult. This life is hard. If nothing else this week, if you've watched the news, it will tell us that this world is incredibly broken, hard, and difficult. The divorces, the deaths, the disease is so significant in this life, and it is tempting in those moments to ask God to remove us from those circumstances. But Paul in Romans 8 wants to say, There's a different way to view your suffering. That the secret to your suffering is Christ in you. Because when we are in Christ, when Christ is in us, our sufferings don't define us anymore. They don't get the loudest voice in your life. They don't determine your worth or your value. And if you can cling to that church, what God has prepared for us is so much bigger than we could imagine. That in view of the mission of God that he has for us here and the glory and the life that he has on the other side of this earth, our sufferings, while still painful, they don't become debilitating. They become a reminder that our God is so much bigger and better than this, this life. And that's just the first three words of verse eight. Remember Jesus Christ. He's gonna go on in verse eight and he's gonna say this. According to my gospel for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. And I actually just wanna zoom in on one word here. Maybe it's unexpected, but it's just this phrase, my gospel. It teaches us something that the gospel is personal. You see, Paul says this way after the road to Damascus. Right, in Acts chapter nine, Paul is walking down the road of Damascus and he gets knocked off his horse by a light and he meets Jesus and there's this incredible moment where Paul meets Jesus and he goes, I'm gonna give my life to you. And long after that experience, Paul says, this is my gospel. This is long after he has planted many churches. He's watched so many people come to Christ. Churches have grown, churches have struggled And if there's a super Christian in the first century, it's Paul. And he says, according to my gospel, church, I believe it's a reminder to us, believers in the room, this is a reminder to us, the gospel isn't just for lost people. The gospel is for us. I, Wes Barnett, you, we are in desperate need of God's grace today, as much today as we were the day we came to know Jesus. We are desperately in need of God's redeeming grace. While we may have grown and experienced the power of Christ in our life, can I tell you something? We aren't perfect. 
We desperately need God's grace every single day until the day we are with him. See, this word my, it also gives us um, an explanation of something, a word that I think is important in the Christian life, and it's this word entrustment. It just means this. It means to charge with responsibility for protection, care, and performance. Isn't it crazy that God has given the only message of redemption for the world to you and to me? That there's a plan, that the brokenness of this world can be redeemed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he, in his wisdom, in his power, in his sovereignty went, here, Rest Church, it's yours. Here, Crossroads Church in Rowlett, it's yours. That blows my mind. And I believe it's just an incredible example of entrustment where God hands the gospel to broken sinners. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to have responsibility for it to protect it. You go, how do, you, how do I protect the gospel? Here's how, with your character. That you are who you say you are. That you are what the Bible commands believers to be. Protect the gospel with your character. With care, um, care about the gospel. Care about the story that Jesus redeemed you and share it with people. And then there's this word performance. And I, I don't want to be, per, like, we're not, I don't think this is performance church. We're not performance church at Crossroads. But here's what performance means in this definition. That you would take active responsibility, active accountability in sharing the gospel with people. Because the gospel is personal. It is our responsibility to share it. Can I tell you that the most unloving thing we can do to people, you want to know what it is? Is to have the message of the gospel and not tell it to them. So today, take personal responsibility to participate in the Great Commission. At Crossroads, we ask this at, the, at every service. We go, whose responsibility is it to share um, the message and the love of Jesus? And every hand in the room goes up because it's not the staff's job. It's not the pastor's job. It is every single believer's in, believer in Christ's responsibility to share in the Great Commission. If you don't know what the Great Commission is, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus, his last words, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is our responsibility as the church to make disciples, every single person in this room. So just two very quick um, kind of litmus test questions. Who are you discipling? By discipling, I mean, who do you spend intentional time with every week to make sure that they grow in their relationship with Jesus? Not just in knowledge. I don't mean go to a Bible college class. I'm all for Bible college. I went to it. I'm not talking about Bible college class. I'm talking about sitting across the table with somebody and going, how's your walk? How's your sin struggle? How's your work? How have you honored God this week? Who are you discipling? And honestly, I think sometimes church people are better at this than the next question. Who are you sharing Jesus with? See, there are lost people dying, destined to a real place called hell all around us. In Paducah, in Rowlett, they're everywhere. People without Jesus, dying without Jesus, even though we have the answer, we have the gospel. I remember Speaking of Bible college, I was a freshman in Bible college and I was sitting in a personal evangelism class and the professor like leaned across the table and these are always the weird moments in Bible college. You're like, what's happening? Especially when you're a freshman, uh, when you think you know everything. Um, and they, 
they, he leaned over and he just asked us, he said, when was the last time you shed tears over the lost people in your life? Church, could I ask us that? I'm gonna ask me that. When was the last time you thought about the lost people in your life and it brought you to a point of tears? Because those people don't have Jesus and they desperately need it and we have the answer. That's the good news is that God has entrusted me and you to share the gospel and to make disciples. Paul's gonna go on in 2 Timothy, he's gonna say this, but the word of God is not bound. That was better than you responded. The word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What's crazy about this is when Paul is comparing and contrasting something, he's saying the word of God is not bound. The reason he says that is because he is. Like he's in chains and he's like, oh, but the word of God, it is not bound. And in our culture today, church, there are so many misconceptions about the Bible. Can I tell you what the Bible is not? It's not a rule book. I mean, there's principles on how to live your life in here, but it's not a rule book. It's also not a, a fake storybook that we just read to our kids and hope they pick it up someday. It's not a weapon to wound other people. <laughs> I'll tell you, in my life, it has been used as a weapon to wound me, particularly when I was a teenager. Can I tell you, this book was never designed to be a weapon. It was never designed to wound you. It's also not a secret code book or a scavenger hunt. Like there, this book came out, or move book, man, my brain. Um, there's a movie came out called National Treasure a few years ago, and it's like, it's like Nicolas Cage, and he's like, I'm gonna find the National Treasure. That's not how this book works. Like there's no day where you're gonna like open up to Ezekiel chapter three, and it's gonna say, Wes, go to here. Like that's never gonna happen. But can I tell you what it is? The Bible is the best-selling and the most shoplifted book of all time. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Best-selling book, also the most stolen. It contains 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in 12 countries on three continents with one message. It is written by poets, prophets, princes, kings, queens, sailors, soldiers, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, and fishermen. And it includes law, poetry, letters, gospel, prophecy, and sermons. This book is powerful. And people have died so that you and I can hold it. See, in the 1400s, there was a guy named John Wycliffe in England, and his life's goal was to um, translate what was called the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin Bible, into English. Wycliffe was thrown into prison, and before he could be prosecuted, it's going to sound weird, he thankfully died. Because weeks later, his Oxford colleagues were burned alive. Forty years after his death, they dug up his bones, burned them, and threw them in the river for the work that he did to get this Bible to you and to me. About a hundred years later, a man named William Tyndale, he spent his whole life translating the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek Bible into English so that me and you could hold it today, and he was thrown into prison, he was tried for heresy, and then he was strangled and burnt at the stake. And we were talking about last words today, and his last words were this. Open the king of England's eyes. And Henry VIII would soon turn Protestant from Catholic, and the William Tyndale Bible 
would become the most popular book in England. Why? I think Hebrews chapter 4 answers why. It says, for the word of God is alive. It is effective and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And it is able, don't miss this, to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Church, this book is alive. That's why people have died for it. That's why people have spent their life learning it. So that you and I could hold it and read it. Not buy it and put it on a bookshelf in our house and never open it again. And I think the reason many Bibles collect more dust than they are opened is this. is because we don't really believe this is God speaking to us. Because if you and I actually believed that every time I opened this word, the creator of the universe, God, was speaking to you and to me, we couldn't help but put it down, right? It would be amazing. Can I tell you, that's what this is, church. It is the word of God alive. It is God talking to you, giving you instruction and mission and purpose for your life. Open the Bible. I heard a preacher one time say, he said, an open Bible is way harder to resist than a closed one. And and the way that he slept was right by his bed. His Bible was just open. It's harder to walk by an open Bible than a closed Bible. Can I tell you, the word of God is not bound. It is not bound by our culture. It is not bound by current events. It's not bound by politics. It's not bound by anything. The word of God will move forward. It will move forward into eternity. It is alive. It is powerful. It can radically transform your life, rest church. And then, and then Paul says this, this is why I endure all things. So this is a, this is an interesting clause right here, right? He's about to tell you why he's in prison. And you might have an answer that you expect. I think it's an answer that's a little bit unexpected and one we should be grateful for. He says this, this is why I endure all things for the elect to obtain salvation so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's what I mean. I think right here we would expect Paul to say, the reason I am in chains is for Jesus, is for the gospel, is for the message of God, and he does, and he actually says, for the elect here. Let me translate that for you. Uh, Paul was in prison so that you and I one day might get the gospel. He's going to be, he goes, I'm going to endure this. I'm going to sit in struggle. I'm going to sit in suffering so that God's people would get the message of God. And Paul knows something that we have to wrestle with is that a genuine love for God always means a genuine love for God's people. You cannot separate the two. You cannot love God and hate the church. That's not an option. That's like saying you love me and hate Caitlin. That's not on the table. See, a love for God is always connected to a love for people. A love for God commands a love for evangelism. It commands a love to share the message of God with people that don't know him. The love for God commands a love for discipleship. And love, as you know if you're married, It is not a feeling, it's an action. That every day we would choose to love people. That it would be, that we would be patient and kind and compassionate and not keep a record of wrongs and not irritable and not rude. All the things 1 Corinthians 13 says that we say at a wedding, it's actually um, a passage about loving other people. It's about loving the church. We wanna treat people that way. Church, we wanna be careful that we don't spend our whole life avoiding people that Jesus spent his whole life engaging. 
Don't spend your whole life avoiding people that Jesus spent his whole life engaging. And then Paul's going to wrap up this way. It's interesting. He says, this saying is trustworthy. So he's actually going to quote something here. He's going to quote a hymn that Timothy would be very familiar with. It says this, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Fourth point this morning is just this. I just want you to hear the truth of the gospel. Like I said, Paul quotes a hymn to Timothy here, and he actually tells us something about truth, where he's going to demonstrate something about truth that I think we need to hear this morning, is that truth always comes with hope and challenge. Truth often offers a hope for a better future, but is normally accompanied by great challenge. Here's what I mean. Um, I've spent my whole adult life on a weight loss journey. Like some days, I'm crushing it. Anybody relate to this? <laughs> and other days, like today, not crushing it. But the donuts were great. McDonald's was awesome this morning. Like other days, like other days I'm great. Some days I'm not. But here's the truth about my weight loss journey. We're talking about truth here. There is hope for me. There is hope for a healthier future. There is hope that one day I might become a runner, although it is small. But there is hope that one day I will lose weight and be healthier. And that's what I want. Here's the challenge. You know the challenge. No more fast food, ice cream, potatoes, or pasta. Like, there's no more of that. You see, there's always a hope that truth, when truth is given, there's always hope for a healthier future, but there's always great challenge. And I believe this is why many people resist the truth of God in their life. That they like the hope but they're not in it for the challenge. Another way you could say this is we can't handle the truth. Like we can't do it because we like the hope, but we don't love the challenge. So what is the truth of the gospel? Paul kind of lines it out right here. He says this first. He says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. There's a quote by um, a pastor named Russell Moore. And he says this. This like shifted my life, my senior year of Bible college. For too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Have you ever heard that um, expression? Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life is a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life. And his life isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild, exhilarating, and unpredictable. You see, when we die with Jesus, he invites us into his life. That is the Christian life. And you go, what does it mean to die. Here's the thing, that every day we wake up and we decide to die to our sin. We decide to die to our opinions. We decide to die to our preferences. We decide to die to our temptations. And every single day as a believer, I wake up, I choose to take up my cross, die to my sin, and follow Jesus. And that's how to live a life for Christ with purpose. If we died with him, we will also live with him. There's actually some, there's a lot of hope here. It says, let's talk about when you physically die. When you die, you will live. Death is just a, a doorway. That's a, a popular lyric in worship songs, but that, we actually get that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, we are confident, we'll go back to that, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The way this was said when I was a kid in church is to be absent with the body is to be home with the Lord. But there's a phrase here, we are confident. So if I ask the room today. If you died today, how confident are you on a scale of one to 10 that in your next moment you would be with Jesus? As a believer in Christ, there is one answer to that question. 10. 
Any other answer reveals a lack of something in us, a lack of relationship with Jesus, because the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your eternity is secured forever with him. That's why Paul says we are confident, 10. We are a 10, that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Then he says, if we endure, we also reign with him. I believe this is a a direct reference back to the Garden of Eden. I know I've referenced that a few times this morning, but back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter one, there's a command. It says, uh, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus says to Adam, he says, go and have dominion over the world. It says, go and reign is essentially the word there. And I believe what Paul says here is that one day, if we are believers in Christ, we will return to a Genesis one world. That we reign co-heirs with Christ. That we reign over creation. But there is a very, very important clause here. He says, if we endure. Church, the reward of endurance is greater than what you might gain from quitting. But can I tell you, there's always a reason to quit. This is back to the weight loss journey thing, right? There's always a reason to quit your diet. Because there's always donuts. There's always mashed potatoes. There's always, like they're always, always there. And can I tell you something, church? The reward for endurance is way greater than what you might gain from quitting. And I think in Ephesians 6, when Paul says this, you'll you'll, uh, recognize this text, when he says, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may, may be able to resist in the evil day and having, listen to this, having prepared everything to take your stand, Stand, right? Having done everything to stand, what do you do next? Keep standing, keep enduring. It's because Paul knows what we need to know this morning. The reward of endurance is way greater than what you might gain from quitting. You see, there is a long-term reward coming for those who endure, and it is the chance to reign with Jesus for eternity. And then the challenge comes right? You go, endurance is not the challenge. No, no, no. This part is the challenge. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Matthew chapter 10, some of the most chilling words in all of scripture happen right here. It says, therefore, this is Jesus talking, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. See, church, a refusal to share the gospel with lost people in this world is a refusal to be a part of the kingdom of God. Part of being a believer in Christ is taking a part, taking a commitment in the message of Christ, getting alongside in the gospel. You see, if we choose to neglect the gospel in this life, then Jesus before his Father will deny us. And you might go, Wes, what if I'm not perfect? Good news. That's not an option. Perfection is not on the table in the Christian life. Willingness and surrender is on the table. And that's what I love about the next verse. So he says, if you you deny me, I will also deny you. But then there's this next verse that is so powerful for the Christian life. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, I needed this word this week. This is what God had for me this week, and I hope it impacts you 
when believers act in a way that is counter to the character of God, it doesn't take away from who God is. When the church wounds people, it may damage people's perception, but it will not damage our God. God still is who he says he is. No matter what this world looks like, no matter what our culture looks like, in our worst moments, in every person's worst moment, God remains faithful. God is still everything that this book says he is. God is still good. God is still faithful. God is still sovereign. God is still compassionate. God is still just. He is still merciful. He is still gracious. And God is still eternal. And God is for you. And he is with you. And he has an invitation for you today. Come straight out of Romans chapter 10. It says where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 